You know you're a surveyor when you're watching the panning shot over the roof of Hogwarts Castle and think, yeah, those tiles can't take the weight of that dragon. You're not alone, my friend. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub with me, Marion Ellis. So welcome to the podcast today, Maria Coulter. Hello, Maria. Hello, Marion. Thanks for having me on. So I was just saying, I'm really nervous because you're my friend. <laughs> I know it is a bit weird, isn't it? Talking you to know, each other like this. You know, sometimes these are some of the best conversations because we can just chat about anything and just forget about the the millions of people that will be listening in. <laughs> Absolutely, definitely. But I apologise in advance for anything that comes out of my mouth. So, introduce yourself, Maria. Okay, so my name is Maria Coulter. I am the Managing Director of Construction Coach. So I'm a coach in the construction industry, uh, does what it says on the tin, basically. And I work with SMEs and micro-businesses to help them grow more profitable and happier businesses. But I started life as a, a quantity surveyor, and that's how we met, isn't it, through um, surveying and being a woman in surveying. It's interesting because you call yourself an MD, a managing director, whereas I always think of you as a founder of the the the, the movement and the work that you you do. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think managing director is just a term that I gave myself. Well, I mean, it, it's something I. I am referred to and I have done for a while but I've never thought about the founder bit before and I I think that is a really good point. Maybe it's me just being (laughs) (laughs) anti-corporate. And maybe I was trying to be too corporate. (laughs) So you said you started out as a a QS. Let's have a chat about how did you get into that? Um, I got into being a QS because I was turned down from an apprenticeship in an organ factory. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as in a mu- musical organs yes so um how did you fail that maria <laughs> <laughs> so woodwork was my favorite subject at school so i was only one of there was one of two girls that did gcsa woodwork and the woodwork teacher arranged for us to go on a tour of a church organ factory in the northeast and i actually could play the organ and I played the church organ so I'd gone for music lessons you know when I was when I was younger and I thought oh brilliant because I thought about becoming a joiner or a, a carpenter or a furniture maker or something like that and I remember going around this factory and I thought oh how cool would it be to work in this organ factory and to get an apprenticeship because there was you know apprenticeships available and I said, right, you know, I'd love to put myself forward to be an apprentice. And they said, oh, no, sorry, we can't take you because we've got no female welfare facilities. <laughs> what did they think you needed? Well, they had no female toilets, apparently. <laughs> so I couldn't get an apprenticeship because oh. I had no female toilets. So you see, you see, I can't, I can't imagine, well, I can't imagine you in that role knowing you how I do now. But I can see, I have got this image now. I can imagine you on the repair shop, <laughs> which is a program in the BB on the BBC where they repair old things for those listening outside the UK. But I can just see you there tinkering, making things in a in a nice glamorous setting because you're very glamorous, Maria. Oh, thank you. I can't imagine you in a little workshop. <laughs> I know it's weird, and I think I, I got really rebellious after that because I remember looking through the college prospectus. And I saw a picture of a roof truss. I was like, oh, construction. There's not many women in construction. I'm going to do that. So I think 
being rejected brought out a rebellious streak in me and that's what led me into construction and that's interesting isn't it because sometimes these things can make us think okay that's not for me but for you obviously it sort of turned it around I remember uh, applying for a role as a rating surveyor trainee rating surveyor which has all sorts of (laughs) connotations to it but I I didn't get the job and I was I was the guy in the interview said well you know you can't wear skirts when you're climbing a ladder and I felt like saying duh as if I'm going to wear a skirt while I'm climbing a ladder I do own trousers so I count that as a as a lucky escape but wow that had quite obviously quite a a motivating thing for you then Mm. it really did and then um we had to do some work experience and I did two weeks work experience that turned into a summer of work experience when they were building the Nissan car factory in Sunderland and I got experience in the quantity surveying department and I was like right I'll be a quantity surveyor and that's kind of where that came from so I made the decision then to be a quantity surveyor and then ended up going to uni and getting chartered and and all of that. And so, and so what kind of thing I mean I'm not a QS as you know so, so what kind of things were you doing as a as a quantity surveyor so I did I mean I started my career in London so I was working on some big projects um I mean I remember the first project I worked on was Merrill Lynch European headquarters in London and I remember turning up to this big construction consultancy on day one and being told to hop into a black cab and get myself down to a meeting you know in the city of London and it was like wow okay this is exciting this is a bit different from a, a little village up in the northeast so yeah, I mean, I was working on those, you know, big projects to start with and worked on some university projects as well. So got involved with some really interesting ones. And I also had a little bit of experience working in New York as well. So they sent me over to the uh, the New York office for six weeks, which oh, wow. was fantastic. That must have been quite a big move from the northeast to London. Yeah. And it happened by accident. Because I naively was applying for jobs because, I mean, bearing in mind, you know, we didn't really have like the internet in those days or we we, we had a, a sort of a rough version of the internet. And I remember we had this, um, it was like this graduate magazine that had all of these sort of vacancies in that you applied for. And I remember applying, to, you know, for vacancies and I thought, well, okay, so I'm sending my CV to London, but I know that they know I'm from the northeast, so they'll send my CV to the Newcastle office. Like I didn't think when I was sending my CV and letters to London that I'd actually was applying for a job <laughs> in London. And then all of a sudden I got an interview in London. I was like, oh, okay. So I remember going down for that and and walking around and thinking, oh, this could be good. And then a week later I had an interview with somebody else. And then a week later I had a contract in the post. So it all happened sort of by accident. It was it was not planned, but, you know, it was an amazing experience. Well, that's where this naivety and just throwing yourself at it, you know, can produce all sorts of things. I remember my first role, I was a, a little bit older when I when I graduated and I got on a graduate management programme for Lang, which involved moving around the country. And until that point, and I was early 20s, apart from going to Chester, I live from North Wales, going to Chester across the border. I'd only ever been to Greece once. Because <laughs> really, I had, you know, back then I had absolutely no no reason to go to England or to go anywhere else. And so the whole sort of 
the the distance and the the difference of what it was like to work in a city you know sort of went over my head until I was sort of got into the reality did you get homesick no I I only (laughs) moved to Birmingham and I was so homesick I sometimes used to drive home at night go to my mum's for a cup of tea and then come back oh um no I didn't actually but I mean I always spoke to my family kind of my mum and dad I always spoke to them pretty much every day Mm -hmm. so I had that constant connection but no I I I didn't get homesick it's and I never did when I went to uni either it was really weird as close as as I am to my family I never got homesick I don't know why I did (laughs) but I think there's a lot to be said for the your working environment the culture you're in the people you're surrounded with because they're big moves and when when I think about graduates and, and trainees now and how they do or don't move around the country I mean I I lived in London for many years before I moved out it was a thing to do like a rite of passage to you know house share with somebody you know it's how I met a husband you house share with somebody and then you progress to try and buy the smallest property you can in London or you know and and eventually move out when you have kids and things like a sort of almost like a, a rite of passage and and I do think now with the way that work has changed let's face it it must be really I, I think it must be really hard for those not just who are students but in those first jobs you know as uh, as graduates what that might be like I mean you know I can't imagine yeah definitely I mean I, it, it was a challenge I mean I remember trying to find somewhere to live and thinking Swiss cottage was a Swiss cottage and thinking mansion yeah. was a mansion house <laughs> like I had no idea at all we've all done it Maria <laughs> we've all done it so you did that for a few years and then how did your career progress so I actually ended up in the East Midlands so I'd gone to uni in Nottingham and then moved down to London and then um and then I ended up back in in Nottingham again because as you say it was at that stage where I wanted to buy a property and and things like that couldn't afford to stay in London really and I think I'd I felt like I'd done London I'd been there for five years I was ready to leave and have a different experience so I ended up back in Nottingham again and had a, a job as a senior QS. And then I was asked after, a I think it was a couple of years, whether or not I wanted to be a project manager. And that came out of the blue. But I think it was kind of linked with, I've been doing the role of employee's agent, which I think is kind of a, you know, a cross between sort of quantity surveying and project management. So I ended up becoming a project manager and then training to be a risk manager as well. So that's kind of, where my career progressed at that stage. I've, ne- I've never heard of a, an employee's agent. So it's like the contract administrator role. So basically, so I would act on behalf of the client. It would be the contract administration. It would be sort of chairing the the, the monthly meetings. It would be issuing change orders and, and things like that. And just... If so lot, was... lot, lots of documents and boring stuff yes then. yes lots of documents <laughs> and and contracts and and things like that which I actually found really interesting I really liked the contract side of things I got a bit geeky when it came to contracts and so how did you end up being a coach it was really it was the last recession I was working as a project manager and I think I mean, I was struggling a bit myself with confidence. I saw a lot of unfair behaviour, like people not being valued. You'd see that on the site as well, you know, with the subcontractors and things like that. And I just, I didn't like the culture. I didn't like the culture that recession brought out. And I think it's something that's, it's always there and it's underlying. And when people get into a state of fear, 
and worry, then it really starts to come out. It gets and I think scary, don't they? You know, they really do. People get scary. Yeah. They really do. When I saw people being beaten up, you know, you get the redundancy stick out and you're lucky to have a job and, and all of that. And and it was just, it was awful. And I actually had coaching myself. What prompted you to get that? I was just so unhappy. I was just really kind of fed up. And I just thought things have got to be different. You know, there's got to be a different way of, of doing things. I need to get more confident. It was really my self-confidence that led me to get coaching. Interesting because... I'm a coach as well and I've been coached and that's how my journey started. I think there comes a point where you just think I need help, but I don't necessarily need therapy or counseling. Mm. You know, I just yeah. need to feel like I'm moving forward. But when you talk about confidence, you know, I need confidence. It's like it's something to fix. It's like a new skills that we think we need to learn. Like there's some magic CPD module on confidence. If only there was because actually it's not about that at all, is it? It's about understanding yourself a lot better. It's about understanding what's important to you, your values, all of those things. And when I work with clients, I always say, you've got the answers inside you. My job is just to help pull some of those things out so that you can see and decide what you want to do. But we often feel like we need to get read fixing, don't we? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the biggest game changer for me when I had coaching was the values bit. Mm. And it was actually understanding that my number one value is fairness. And that was why when I'd seen so much unfair behavior, I felt like my buttons were being pressed massively. And I guess I've always felt like, you know, this thing inside me about sort of championing the underdog and, and things like that. And I kind of then started to have this thing bubbling up in my head about, you know, wanting to make a difference in the industry and, and feeling like there was you know, something bigger than me, that something more that I could do, that I wasn't meant to be a fee earner for the rest of my life. You know, I was, I felt like I was meant to do something to bring change. And, and that's kind of what led me to train to be a coach. And then I think the, that calling just got too loud. And I just made the decision to throw a caution to the wind and jump off a massive cliff and leave my job and, and start my business. How scary was that to do? Oh, gosh. I mean, it got scary afterwards, in all honesty, because I think I was I was so ready to go. I'd been working on a really stressful project. I'd been traveling all over the country. Like, I felt like I had no life at all. And I thought, you know, something's got to change. So, so doing that felt liberating. But then I remember not that long after that, when you sort of waking up at three o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat, thinking, shit, what have I done? <laughs> Mm. and getting scared so it was scary but I kept going mm. you see this is where I I really I think of you more as this this founder you know of this this fairness of this going out and doing and making a difference and it, it's funny you know when you find that trigger you know it either makes you really angry to do something or you just so passionately believing it that you have to do it it just becomes the next thing that you do and so in many ways, it's a no-brainer that you leave your boring job, you know, or the job that's burning you out or whatever, and it just becomes the next thing thing for you for you to do. One of the things I think we're both passionate about is small businesses. Yeah, you definitely. Know, we've both been there ourselves. I tend to work more with surveyors, and you know, you're you're broader in the in the construction sense. But tell me a bit about that because I know you talk about the construction revolution, which I love. 
That's what you're the founder of, Maria, the founder of the Construction Revolution. Love it. Right. So my name's Maria Coulter and I'm the founder of the Construction Revolution. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but tell, um, tell, tell us more about that and how that how that came about. So I think, well, my, my business has definitely grown and evolved. I started my business, it was October 2014 when I started. And I think, first of all, a few months after I started, I was introduced to the business model canvas. So, you know, getting a kind of snapshot of your, your business, that sort of big picture thinking. And then I started working with small businesses. So things just grew and evolved. And I found that my niche was really suited working with the small businesses because I could be directive. I was there to coach. So I was there to get them to think about the big picture, their vision for the future, you know, what they're about as a, as a business and their values and things like that. But also, if I felt like they were at risk at any stage, you know, I could be more directive. So if they're at risk from a a contract point of view, you know, I can point them in the direction of people to help and things like that. And I just felt like it's such a tough environment. Like being a small business, it really opened my eyes working with small businesses in the industry and seeing how tough it is for them, how stressful it is the cash flow problems that they have. It's just really, really hard for them. And I think that's where the construction revolution came in because I started to, I mean, I was learning myself as well. So absorbing all of these kind of leadership books and strategies and seeing what was going out there in different sectors and and how, you know, learning that it doesn't have to be that way. Like we have got behaviours, we've got kind of a culture that it's just that's the way it's been for such a long time. And and it doesn't have to be that way. And there are people doing things differently. But because we're in silos, we don't necessarily know that there's other stuff going on, or on like elsewhere that you could tap into and learn from. So the construction revolution was about enough's enough. We can't go on like this. People deserve to be paid what they're worth, but they also need to demonstrate what they're worth. You know, Mm -hmm. they need to be able to demonstrate why should they pick like my company as opposed to another company and what sets them apart from the competition. And But I think when people start their business, there's such a lot to learn that they potentially go from being on the tools or working in a company to being a leader in their business. And there's just so much for them to know that they don't necessarily know where to start with all of that sometimes yeah absolutely you know I you know I would say you know people love surveying they love the the job they do but they don't necessarily love running a business yeah but there are certain things that you're gonna have to learn or find help with you know that you can carry on loving the the work that that you you do and um, I remember listening to your podcasts podcast out um, a little while ago and I hadn't really heard anything like that before yeah you know and and I think a lot of the work that you do is groundbreaking really thank you hey well I think you are Marie you're a real role model and inspiration for lots of people out there in the industry and the more that we put ourselves out there and talk about these things and let's face it the the media that we have to do that now on you know on social media you know, things like podcasts I know you do some really witty stuff on 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 LinkedIn and and share a lot of what you do we've really got to put ourselves out there how do you feel about that I feel so much better now for a long time marketing and putting myself out there was like my Achilles heel I found it really difficult I was so much better 
at talking about what I did for free rather than what (laughs) I actually did for a living. But I think what really changed there was just me getting super clear about what I'm about and what I do and who I help. And I think once I'd really got that clarity and also the experience, you know, the stories. So I've got experience, I've got stories I can share what impact my coaching's had and and things like that, that I'm feeling, I feel a lot more confident about putting myself out there and and just being that voice and, and letting people know that there is a different way of doing things. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we feel as though we need to get to a point where we've achieved, we've got some sort of validation that we're worth the fee. Yeah, definitely. You know, and that people will pay us for for what we do. I mean, on your website, you've got loads of free tools, you know, that people can download. There are loads of ways that people can can get in touch with you. And yet it still gets to a point where it's all, this is what I do and this is how you can pay me for doing it and the difference that I will make. And I think that 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 resonates with so many people that, you know, you and I come across that it's still the whole mindset when it comes to money and charging what you're worth. A lot of the surveyors I come across have never worked out what their true hourly rate is and what they really need to achieve to get to where they want to at at the end of the the year. And when you do the math and you work that back, you think there's no way you would charge 350 quid for a survey. You know, you've got to be doubling that at least. And if you don't think you can charge it, then you won't. The price is whatever you think it will be, you know, because it's that whole positioning around it. And yes, there's things you need to you can learn about, you know, uh, the sales conversation, you know, the marketing, how you position yourself. But it's all mindset of believing that it, what you do is worth that fee. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that is a challenge to get there. And, and I'm not very good at the salesy bit either. You know, I, I don't really like that side of things. But and I tend to let my clients talk for me as well. Like I'll put them in touch with clients and say, look, have a conversation and things like that. But it is a challenge because as well, you know, cash flow is such a struggle that investing in coaching can be seen as this massive kind of investment, which I totally get. But the amount of money you save them, it's all about return on investment. And that's what I really get across to my clients. It's like, well, yeah, that is how much I cost. But the difference that it makes in your business can be massive. And yeah, and that's the thing, you know, when you're looking at, you know, you're looking at where you're investing, not just investing in yourself. So you know, a lot of the work you and I do is is personal coaching as much as the, the, the business or, or technical side. And that goes hand in hand when you work with uh, with small businesses. But looking at your business and where you're going to invest, you know, you might pay for Facebook ads, you might pay for marketing, you might pay for copywriting. You know, why wouldn't you pay for help in getting your business organized? You know, getting yeah. your get getting your your thinking straight, your strategy straight, where you're going to be heading in the future. Because once you've got that good foundation, you've got a great platform then to go off and do whatever you want, you know, and you can stop worrying so much about the, the business side of things and concentrate on the work that you love to do and get paid well for it. And yet so many people I come across see it as an expense, you know, and yet yet they'll happily pay 500 quid for a CPD day somewhere. Yeah, I totally get that. But I think one of the things that I find that people, they're just not giving themselves time to work on the business. Mm -hmm. So like, I know there's people who want to work with me, 
but they're struggling to get that time and 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 I think that that's the tough bit it's like you know it is that catch-22 situation it's like I know that if they just put aside some time to work with me I can make a difference and and help them see where they can outsource and do things differently and bring in different ways of working and processes and stuff but but they've got to give themselves that time to do it and uh, I think that's that is definitely a big challenge they're not working on their businesses in the way that that would really benefit them Mm. and you often talk about this culture of race to the bottom when it comes to fees and that's something that I see I guess on the resi Svein side, which is is more my bag, is that I, you know, we see that it can be very competitive or there are people who just, I ain't doing that. <laughs> they might not charge as much as as I think they should, but they, they don't enter that race. But when you look sometimes at, you know, price comparison websites and, you know, this sort of imposter syndrome, if you like, of, well, you know, that's the going rate, therefore I need to be 10% cheaper if I want to get a look in. And you just think it's like people are sort of caught up in this vortex, you know, and they can't quite get out of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes there can be like a 50 quid difference between someone who's at the bottom and someone who is going to be the best person for the job. And it always seems to come down to the lowest price. But I think, I mean, I, I recorded a podcast last year with a guy called Rob Moore who um, has written the book about money and and he's like a millionaire sort of property investor and things like that and and he sort of said what we all know is that you know construction and the built environment it's a commodity we're seen as a commodity so there's no differentiator between one person and another and I think that fuels the race to the bottom because if if somebody can't see what is the difference? Why should I pay more for you when I could pay a hundred quid cheaper or a few thousand pounds cheaper and go for that person? I think that is part of the challenge. Like we've got to give them something to differentiate against so that they can we can get away from that lowest price wins because you know that that's where all the problems start. You might you might pick the lowest price, but they're gonna try and claw it back afterwards and you know you're not gonna get the product that you want and you know it all it always nearly always ends up in a bun fight at the end of it and it's not a very positive place to be so we've got to do things differently. Mm. I know you're uh, quite passionate about diversity and you do quite yeah. a lot of work on on that front you're members of various boards tell me a bit about that. Yeah so I'm a non-executive director for the Construction Industry Council and I chair their diversity and inclusion panel and again I think it comes back to that it's that fairness. I try and everything that I do, like whether it be in my business or voluntarily, it all kind of links with that. It's that kind of wanting to make a difference, but also wanting to create an environment where people can be themselves, like where everybody can be themselves. And that's what that kind of means to me. And I also deliver training for the supply chain sustainability school as well. So I deliver fairness, inclusion and respect training just to really get people to think about the difference that diversity and inclusion can bring to their organisations and and how they do that, really. How did you get involved in these roles? Because a lot of people that I speak to, particularly when they're looking to get their fellowship application, which we need to speak to you, Maria, about <laughs> that, you know, they're looking to get to this additional board experience. 
how did you get to that point? Because not doesn't not everybody feels that they can or they've got the experience to do it. Yeah. So I think I mean it started in the East Midlands with the RICS. I saw that there was an opportunity to be on the regional board, and I just thought, well, I could do it. And somebody had said something about maybe going for one of the sort of local groups in the region in the RICS, and then I thought, well, I could just go for the board. And I was in two minds whether or not to do it. And I kind of taught myself out of it. And then I got home from work early one Friday and I thought, sod it, I'm going to do it. I've got nothing to lose. And I put forward the application and I sent it off a minute before the deadline. (laughs) So I literally just thought, right, I'm going to go for it. And then I had an interview and I got on the board. So that gave me a lot of confidence because I'd never been involved with the RICS regionally before. So that was a big confidence boost. And I loved being part of that. And then they were looking for a representative to be on the Construction Industry Council in the East Midlands. So I put myself forward for that. And then I was I was on that committee for a while. And then I, I put myself forward to be chair. And, you know, I became chair. And then after that, I just I made myself really visible. Mm. So I just kind of got out there I went to London I went to conferences I just really made myself visible and and did stuff as well you know like we 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 did quite a few things we did a, a competition to see how we could get younger people into the industry and work with Nottingham Trent University and just really kind of was visible and then I was asked to consider being a board member and it just sort of went on from there really. You make it sound quite easy that I just put myself forward and I just did the next thing and then I, I did the next thing. How do you get over sort of the the doubt? Because all of us have this, can I do it? Can I not? And and I've I've gone through stages like that in my career and I've just thought, sod it, I'm just gonna do it. Or you just have to take a deep breath and do it. And I did that when I've applied for boards. I did it when I went for governing council, you know, and just thought part of me thought. Mm, how hard can this be to get through an application? <laughs> oh, I'll just do it for the experience in the back of my mind thinking, yeah, you know, if I'm going to make a difference, then I want to be in the place where I can I can make a difference. But I still yeah. had wobbles. You know, I was going to apply for president. I didn't because you just think, oh, is that something I can do? You know, at each stage we have these sort of mindset blocks. But how do you how do you get over it? Well, I think I think the, the biggest one was was with the the very first role that I you know with the RICS I thought well they don't know me why would they want me you know all of those little gremlins on the shoulder were happening and then I thought sorry I'm gonna go for it and then I think it became easier after that because um you know put myself forward for the CIC you know making myself visible and I think also having my own business further down the line has given me a lot more confidence as well because I'm I'm proud of what I'm doing. I'm proud of the fact that I'm doing it and I'm still here. Mm. And I'm doing something that I feel passionate about. So I think when you're doing something that you feel really passionate about, I think you make yourself more vocal and you make yourself more visible. And I think that's why if whatever role that you're in, I think it's important to feel passionate about what you do because it's that passion that propels you forward. And I found that also when I'd really found what I wanted to do and I had that passion, like doors just started to open. It 
synchronicities started to happen and it all kind of it all sort of the way became clear I guess because I felt like I wasn't paddling downstream anymore I was kind of I was going with the flow. Mm. One of the things I know we've talked about in the past is sort of manifesting and, and visioning and making things happen and I remember you telling me about going to Mipim. Yeah so I'd had this vision in my mind for a while First of all, I think it was curiosity because for years, even before I start my business and things like that, it was always like you'd hear about MIPIM and people going to Cannes and I thought it, it sounded very glamorous. and very glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think I had a bit of FOMO. I was like, well, I want to go there. I want to be there. And then I think when I sort of started my own business, I just had this kind of dream, this vision in my head that I wanted to be a speaker at MIPIM. And I remember one afternoon I think again it was probably a Friday afternoon or something like that and I just had an idea in my head to do a Google search and find out like you know who worked for for the company that puts on MIPIM like it's read midem or whatever and I, I I just did the search found a name and uh and sent an email and said I'd love to be considered as a speaker and you know said about the work that I did with the CIC and all sorts of things like that and um and then we had a call and then a couple of weeks later, she said, oh, yeah, I've got an idea about a panel that I'd like you to speak on. And then I was invited to be a, a speaker at MIPIM. So it was a brilliant experience. I remember you sharing a picture of you on a boat with a glass of fizz. <laughs> yeah, that was a real good moment. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. And I think it's it's good to just aspire to these th- to some of these things. I mean, for, for a lot of us you know, surveyors, Mipping would just pass us by mm-hmm. you know it's not it's you know in our, in our sector there I don't think there's any kind of equivalent but just feeling as though you've that you're somewhere that you I guess it's sort of getting to that point where you know you've made it or you've gone so far did you feel like that when you're on that boat I felt really good I mean I think walking into Mipim for the first time with a speaker's badge was a really really good feeling and just just the experience of seeing people and connecting with people and, you know, having those conversations and things like that. It just, it felt amazing. I felt really, really lucky and, and very privileged to be there, definitely. I think um, as we record this in 2021, I think the next one's in Leeds. Yeah. Isn't really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we you know. Ring? <laughs> no, but, I, you know. I think well I'm sure they'll have some some good conversations there but yeah definitely can recommend the the one in Cannes. And something uh, I know with with my clients and the surveyors that I speak to is that they they struggle to have a vision of what this what things might look like what life might look like in the future um, and where they want to be and it's it's quite a big ask when you're stuck in the thick of it to imagine what life could be like you know, particularly when sometimes we don't have role models, you know, I know particularly for women uh, in surveying, there aren't as many, hopefully, you know, there's there's getting more, but there aren't as many role models that we have access to know what careers could be like, what life could be like. Same for successful small businesses, you know, a lot of them aren't connected. I know a lot of the work that you and I do is to connect small businesses together so that they, Mm. you know, can share notes if you like and, uh, and get that support. But it's quite a big ask, isn't it? That gap between where you are now and stuck and what life might be like in the future. It is definitely. And I think that's why, you know, when I'm coaching people, I, I get them to expand their vision. 
So I remember working with a roofing contractor and, you know, asking the question, where do you see yourself being in sort of 10 years time? And at that time, he was saying, well, oh, you know, I'd love to be making 150 grand a year or whatever and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, really? Is that all? You know, in 10 years time, can we not go a bit bigger than that? And and then I think he started to think about it. And then he thought, well, if I build the business up, maybe in 10 years time, I could sell it for a few million as a going concern. And, I was, and then I could go off traveling. I was like, now that's a different story. And at that stage, I think, you know, he would have been maybe 50 or something like that. And that is a very different story. And it's about giving yourself that sense of purpose. And and a lot of my clients, I find, I want to get into property development. Mm. So I'm kind of encouraging them to, you know, to get some financial planning in in place and things like that and and think about, okay, so if you want to get into property development, then what pot do you need? You know, how much money do you need to be putting aside? And, And getting them to think about the lifestyle that they want to lead and and things like that so yes it can be it can be difficult but I think it is about I feel like part of my role is getting that expansive thinking and helping them think that there is there is more to that definitely. Mm. You mentioned being visible and I think that's something that resonates with lots of people and certainly lots of surveyors who who listen to this podcast and some days we feel like being visible and we're out there and we can do our thing and it's great. And other days we just don't feel like that at all. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Mm. How do you, you know, have you experienced that and how do you get through that? Yeah, I mean, I experienced it recently, as you know, with grief. So, mm. you know, not wanting to be sort of doom and gloom, but my mum passed away at the end of February. And I did go through that stage of, I don't really care. I'm not bothered. Mm. I don't want to be visible. I don't want to show up. I don't care about being on social media. Like I just like wasn't, you know, just couldn't do it. But I think what helped me was like reconnecting with who I am. And I think, and it it was just, I think one of the things that made a difference was, um, so I did, I had some coaching at that stage myself and I was doing like some journaling, you know, writing things down. And one of the the questions I, my coach got me to ask myself was, um, when you were growing up, what were your favourite movies? And when I thought about it, I was like, oh, Star Wars. And I was thinking like Rocky and just dance movies, flash dance. And, and it just, it was like, well, it was always about like the underdog and it was always about like, and also fun and dancing and, and stuff like that. And just reconnecting with who I am and what's important to me really kind of, got helped me get my mojo back so that I was ready to be visible again and I think if anybody if anybody's struggling and feeling a bit or yeah I want to be and I'm not sure and 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 on all sorts of things like that then I think really tapping into who you are and and what you're about and having that somewhere where you can read now and again just to remind you of why you're doing what you're doing and and why it's it's so important I think is is a good anchor Mm. and it's not just about being visible on social media it's about showing up in your business yes absolutely and the thing is life happens yeah you know there's good days there's bad days there's you know births deaths marriages debt divorce you know it keeps us going the whole lot but it's okay to sometimes step back and it's okay to sometimes go 
you know, ahead, all guns blazing. It's the, you know, the ebb and flow of of life at the end yeah. of the day. And so it's okay to, you know, to not feel on top form. But if you've got the structure there and if you've got the network of support there, then it's okay to not show up in your business, not to be visible on social media, take the time off if you need it because you can then come back when you're ready. And it's it's giving yourself permission to do that. And I think sometimes with small businesses, we just soldier on and just yeah. get through. And, and actually we need to give ourselves more compassion and allow ourselves to do that. But then if we've worked on the structure of our business, then we're saying, well, this is what it's for. Yeah, exactly. And that is so important. It's like having that structure in place, having the processes and procedures in place, so that you know if you do need to to take a step back then you you feel that that you can Mm. one of the things I wanted I wanted to ask you about was uh your letter from the queen oh yes (laughs) (laughs) that was a bit of a shock and it was did you think it was a joke well I didn't think it was a joke but because it came from the cabinet office and and it was I think it was you know signed by it was like on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen and things like that. And when I first saw the letter, I, I thought, because I was on a parliamentary commission about getting more women into construction, and I thought it must just be about that because we were due to have some sessions, you know, in the Houses of Parliament and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, that must be what it's about. That sounds so like, wow, <laughs> like, you know, important. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was really good. I mean, getting to to go to Parliament and and sit in in the sessions was really really good. And uh, that was definitely one of those moments when you sort of pinch yourself and think, right, am I going to set off any alarms when I walk in here and and stuff like that? And yeah, and then I got I got the letter and I was like, oh my gosh! And I just yeah, I just when I read it, it was like you know they want want to award you a British Empire medal for you know services to diversity and inclusion in the construction industry and I was like wow okay and then of course you've got to keep it quiet so I mean I rang I rang up my husband and I was like I'm in shock and I mean I know bless her my mama has passed away now but I think at that time he thought my mama died (laughs) (laughs) and I was like I'm in shock and he's like well what's happened and 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 he I think he was a bit in shock as well when I told him but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I, I was really honoured to be on the, on the Queen's Birthday Honours list a couple of years ago. So what's next for you? You know, you just talked actually about a really stellar career of when you've gone from the next thing to the next thing and just moving forward. What's next for you, Maria? Well, I guess I'd like to go global. That's the next thing. I really am in the process of building a community for SMEs and micro business owners in the construction industry to come together to solve the problem of how do we get away from the waste to the bottom on cost? How do we build stronger, happier, more profitable businesses and, you know, bringing in sort of guest experts and things like that. So the next thing for me is an online community to just to reach as many people as I can, because, you know, I do work one to one and I really enjoy that. But one of the things that I've noticed with my clients is they really crave community Mm. and they feel very insular because of the competition element as well. It's like they know that somebody else will be going through something similar to them, but they don't necessarily talk about it. And also it's getting people to share ideas and solutions. So I try and put my clients together 
So if one client is using a lot of technology and really kind of getting massive benefits and rewards, I'll put them in contact with another client so that they can have a conversation and they can help each other. And I want to do that on a massive scale. So I'm wanting to start this, you know, to create this community of, of small businesses to really help themselves and just get away from this, this race to the bottom and do things differently. Maria, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Marion. I've loved it. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website, lovesurveying.com. And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.